I think this is, there we go. And uh, happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers that are here and those of you who have mothers, those of you who have had mothers, which pretty much covers everybody here. So happy Mother's Day. I'm really glad to be here and I'm, I'm particularly grateful for the opportunity to speak to you something that Randy asked me to speak about that is a portion of a, a family life seminar that uh, we did in India this last uh, January. Uh, and I hope that it is of great encouragement to you. About 30 years ago, my wife and daughter and I moved to Texas for me to go to graduate school, Fort Worth. And the school owned a house that they allowed us to rent. We actually drove in there in the middle of the night, sight unseen, pulled the truck up, went into this house. And this house was very, very small, old, run down, and presented us with some very interesting challenges, to say the least. I had no, it was so small that our whole bed pretty much took up our room. And there were no doors on any of the rooms because they took up too much room. So we had to buy this accordion door for our front and shower had no, I mean the bathroom, one bathroom we had had no shower in it. Uh, The house was drafty, making it freezing in the winter and unbearable in the summer. The backyard was huge. It was about five or six times the size of the house. And when we first moved in, they had let it go for a very long time. And the grass and weeds and everything else was about this high. And when the school sent the maintenance crew to clear it out, they found all kinds of interesting creatures like rattlesnakes and other things. So that was a challenge to keep mowed. But, But the most challenging thing about it was that right in the middle The foundation was cracked and half of it sunk like this. So one half of the house was lower than the other half of the house, which to compensate, we had to do certain different things. Like I had to shimmy two inches the dining room table so that it was level on one end. And when we cooked on the stove, it... um, we had to actually hold the pan straight because if you let it lay flat, things would fall out of it. So that was those were our poverty days. And actually, we had a lot of good memories there, very fond memories of that place. We spent three years there. Um, but we're, we're very, very grateful, much more grateful for anything that we have now and appreciate those times. But just like just like any physical structure house or building, that that whole house was affected by the condition of the foundation. All of us who live in Southern California, California for any length of time, we know what happens to houses that are built on cliffs when torrential rains come. Uh, Eventually, it washes the, the earth right out from under them, and they fall and crash. 
And then we wonder, why do people build houses on cliffs or on hills where the mud comes in and washes it away? And they wonder the same thing. See, our our lives are the same way. We build our lives and what we build our lives on, and we all build our lives on something, some idea that we have about reality and how life works, what, what we build it on determines the stability of our lives over time. Um, and that stability is determined by the degree to which we are then, we're able to withstand life. The pressures, the demands, the difficulties that life naturally and inevitably brings. One of the most important areas of life are relationships, beginning with marriage and family, and in particular, parenting. As we were raising our daughter, we frequently were not quite sure in any given moment that we were actually doing the right thing. Um, And I've had the opportunity over several decades as I've counseled parents and uh, scores of parents who are who are struggling with the same thing, that one of the most common questions I get is, what do I do? Faced with this situation right now, my child is doing this, and I, I we just don't know what to do. To, to varying degrees of desperation depending on what's happening. Because we want to know what to do. And the answer to that question is that, it, well, the answer always begins with the right foundation upon which we are approaching our parenting. So the foundation really does matter. It makes all of the difference because it, the foundation then, just like with our little house, the foundation determines everything else that we do. So today I want to take just a brief look at what the difference that the Bible as a foundation for living makes in how we raise our children. According to the Bible, effective parenting begins with the right foundation. Foundation really does matter, and it matters first and foremost. Uh, Jesus really gave us a picture of the difference that a foundation, that the foundation for a life makes, uh, in what is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in the in three chapters in Matthew. He told a parable, as he often did, that that really pointedly uh, drives this home. And then he explains what it means. We find it in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. I want to read it and then make a few observations about it and then talk about the difference that makes in terms of our foundation. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine 
and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. I have to resist the temptation because I was raised in Sunday school to sing the little song I was taught that goes with that. The wise man built his house on a rock. Floods came anyway, so I, I, I will spare you. I can't get it out of my head. But it's a really great song to teach kids for this very reason. Just a few observations. The houses that are built here represent a person's life, as Jesus said. And they are, they are not distinguishable from one another. In fact, if you knew nothing else about them, you would think that them identical on the surface of things. And they're also built. That is, uh, they're constructed piece by piece over time on the foundation, just as a life is built a little at a time. We call that development over years. Uh, just one thing built upon another. And the foundations here represent what a person decides is the ultimate authority in their lives that guides them, that guides the primary direction of their life, where their life is headed. Then the the specific decisions and details of everyday life, like relationships and work and play. In this story... The difference is between the two foundations. And the rains represent the realities of life, especially life's troubles. And these storms, the storms of life, eventually reveal the quality of the foundation upon which a person builds his life. Whether or not that life is really going to stand is determined by the foundation. Jesus says that there are only two possible foundations upon which we build our lives. The word of God or the world's philosophies. The world, worldly, either what he calls sinking sand or solid rock. Worldly philosophies are human ideas and speculations about reality and how life works. Everybody has a philosophy about life and how it works. And the, the world ha- offers many different ideas. They are described here in this story as sinking sand. As such, the, they are extremely unstable as a basis for living because they don't originate from the creator of life and the master designer. So at best, without God, without God's understanding of reality, they can only approximate truth and reality. Now with regard to parenting, which is what we're talking about today, there's almost no end to the advice and often conflicting ideas from a myriad of sources, all of which claim the highest authority from opinions of friends and family who are more than willing to offer those to very highly educated professors 
and skillfully trained professionals. Who, when, so when you ask the question, what do I do? There are plenty of people to answer that question. Then the question is, who do I listen to? Who's right? Whoever we decide is right becomes our foundation. Many of these lead to parenting fads. Parents get caught up in the latest wave or fashion in parenting. Fads come and go. Uh, For example, several years ago, one of the things that that I was asked by several parents is whether or not they should do this because there's just a lot of anxiety and pressure to do it. And that is when a child is very young, before they can speak, we need to teach them sign language so that they can express themselves because they can't do it now. And if they can't express themselves, then they'll end up being damaged psychologically later on. Now, first of all, if that's true, then I am psychologically damaged. I stand here before you damaged psychologically because my parents didn't teach me that. And so was our daughter. Now, it's not that that's wrong or a bad thing, but to make that, to, to get anxious about something like that is because somebody somewhere is saying that's important and they're listening to them. One of the latest fads, and if you've seen the latest Time magazine cover, you know this. Um, I can't show it to you. It's called attachment parenting. And it is a picture of a young woman with a three-year-old who looks a lot taller than three years old standing and she's standing there and he is breastfeeding him and woke and plans to continue to do so until he decides he doesn't want that anymore. Now that is a fad and it's becoming more and more popular. And there is a doctor who is considered their guru who is now helping them to detach. That is the latest expert. Others, other ideas impact an entire generation of parents and then children that are raised by those philosophies. One of the best examples of that is Dr. Spock in the 50s. Not the Star Trek Spock, but Dr. Spock. Dr. Spock um, challenged for the first time in decades the way that we parent our children here in America. And radically shifted an entire generation's approach to parenting. Then when he was older, he saw the results of his advice and repented. He changed his mind and recanted it. Well, thank you for those who raised them that way. It matters who we listen to. Colossians 2.8, the Apostle Paul gives a more specific description of worldly philosophies. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Uh, worldly philosophies have four characteristics. One, they depend on human tradition and basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Two, they are deceptive. That is, they they sound so good and so right. But they're not. That hints the deception. And they're hollow. They're empty. Another translation says empty. That they look good on the outside, but on the inside, there's nothing there. And they're captivating. 
we get caught up in them and begin to make decisions and build our lives around them. Before we know where it's headed. In other words, they look and sound really promising, but in the end, they're found to be woefully lacking because, again, they don't quite match God's design for reality. This is why Jesus refers to the one who builds his life on worldly philosophies, a fool. Because a fool consistently misjudges, just misses reality. And then ends up doing stupid things that cost them dearly in the long run. The word of God, on the other hand, is considered a solid foundation upon which to build our lives And Jesus associates that with being wise. The Bible is a solid foundation for life because it was written by the creator of life. And it defines truth and reality. So as well as explaining the whole meaning of our existence, the Bible speaks to every area of life, including parenting. How do we know how stable a foundation is? Very quickly, it's tested by the storms of life. Both of the foundations are equally tested by the same difficulties that life brings. But a life based on the world is sinking sand and comes crashing down under the pressures and troubles of life. And all kinds of problems come throughout life. If we put our trust in authorities, our whole trust, other than the Bible. But a life that's built upon the truth of God's word is a solid rock. It's trustworthy. It is stable, it is sure, and it can stand, withstand whatever life brings its ways. So what we base our parenting on is eventually revealed with time through our children and grandchildren's ability to continue to walk with God in spite of what life brings them. So what does the Bible teach us about parenting? The answer to that question begins with what it tells us first about family. So I want to look at that very quickly and then look at some practical, more practical implications. First of all, family was God's idea. It was God's idea and begins with the marriage covenant. Anthropologists, sociologists, psychologists, the behavioral scientists, which is my academic field, they they believe Uh, almost unanimously, that marriage is a human invention and family is a human invention. And that idea is taught religiously in colleges. Because of that, therefore, it is considered optional and we can define it however we want to. This is why marriage, as it's been understood for thousands of years, is being aggressively challenged today. And for those who want to change it, the reason for marriage for them is simply this. This is what any two people who love each other can get out of it. And then parenting is completely separated from that. But God, Bible teaches something very different in Genesis 2, 18 through 24. It's a lengthy passage and I won't take time to read it now. But what it tells us is that God established the institution of marriage and family for his specific purposes. From this and many other passages in the Bible, we get that 
God defines God is the one who defines marriage and family and he alone determines its purpose, including parenting and that the family begins with the marriage as a covenant relationship before God. That is a vow made to each other with God as witness, which means that he holds us accountable for fulfilling that vow. Listen to Malachi 2.14. We pick up in the middle of a thought where God is rebuking his people for not taking this seriously. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her that she, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Thus, according to the Bible, marriage and family have two major purposes. The first is to fulfill our need for companionship. Genesis 2.18 reads, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Verse 24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Uh, This passage is about God's intent For two people in imaging himself, uh, who is relational, coming together, uniting in the bond of marriage and covenant of marriage in order to work together as a team to fulfill each other's uh, needs and then begin to build a family. Malachi um, 2.14 also tells us that marriage meets our greatest human need for intimacy and for that reason it requires a level of commitment that allows for the development of of trust the second purpose though for marriage it's often overlooked is raising godly children listen to malachi 2:15 which tells us the marriage covenant becomes the basis for raising children the way god intended has not the lord made them one in flesh and spirit They are his, and why not? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your covenant. So God intends for a husband and wife to work together as a team to produce and raise godly children. Uh, Parenting is not separated from the marriage relationship. Parenting, first and foremost, then, is a stewardship. It is an assignment from God with a specific prescribed goal. And that is to raise godly children. Generally, what this means is that husband and wife are to live and relate in such a way that they create an environment in the home where the children learn by intention and by example what it means to live for God's purposes. And these purposes are found in his word. With that in mind, I want to consider three directives that the Bible gives us concerning parenting and the practical difference that they make. The goal of parenting, the priority of parenting, and the focus of parenting. The goal of parenting, according to the Bible, is to have the right kind of impact. 
The right kind of impact is not just impacting the next generation and impacting them for what I want, but it is having such an impact on our children that it impacts our grandchildren, the third generation. God is concerned about the third generation. The world tends to be concerned only with the next generation, if that much, with little concern of whether or not there will be generations following each other that care about the things of God. The Bible teaches that in order to raise a generation that really does care about and lives for God's purposes, we must consider the impact of our parenting to the third generation. Look at Deuteronomy 4, 9 through 10. Only be careful. Watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. These are the things that God has done. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord at Horeb when he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live as long as they live in the land, and may teach them to their children. The first generation is to teach the second generation in such a way that they will then be sure, the next generation will be sure to teach their children the same thing. This is God's intent. We find the same idea in Psalm 78, 5 through, um, 5 through 7. He declared statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they, in turn, would teach their children. There's the three generations again. Then they, that is the third generation, would put their trust in God and not forget his deeds but would keep his commandments. This idea runs all the way through the Bible. It's what Randy alluded to last week in his message when he was talking about the impact that Alex's grandmother had on his faith through his parents. And many of us uh, have been the beneficiaries of a similar kind of heritage, for which I am very grateful. But here's the harsh reality. Here's why this is really critical. Commitment to the Lord can be lost in one generation. This this is actually the history of Israel as recorded in the Old Testament. Uh, As they would fail to raise one generation with the third generation in mind and a whole generation would walk in rebellion against God. And then God would come in and rebuke them and the same thing would happen again. Uh, We're experiencing some of that right now in both Europe and America that used to be heavily influenced by Christian ideas. How do we impact the third generation? We have to make sure that our children develop enough commitment and passion themselves about living for God's purposes that when they become parents, they wholeheartedly commit to raising 
their children to do the same. This was true of Timothy as the Apostle Paul reminds him, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of. He's talking about the scriptures. Because you know these from, you know those from whom you learned it, which is his grandmother and mother, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. How did Timothy become convinced? Because he was taught it. Came through three generations. And it became from, from, a, as from a child, he was taught to know and live the scriptures. What will convince our children to take God and his word seriously? Our children are more likely to become convinced. And to become convinced means they own it. It is really theirs. They believe it. They have conviction about it. And are willing to live it in spite of objection to it. One is our relationship to God. They, they will, they're more likely to become convinced when our relationship to God is genuine. Consistently lived out in front of them and intentionally becomes part of the very fabric of our family life. They'll become more convinced if we really know the Bible, which is God's instructions uh, to us about how to live life that's really pleasing to Him and, and willing to obey it. And they'll become more convinced if we have a biblically-based parenting priority and focus. The biblical priority of parenting is not, not teaching them to achieve worldly success. That is not the priority. Priority is teaching them to fear the Lord. By priority, I mean what is the most important thing that we must teach our children if we're going to impact the third generation. And the fear of the Lord is the most important thing because everything else flows out of that. The priority for the majority of Americans is worldly success. It's what I call formula parenting because it tends to follow a specific commonly accepted and prescribed step-by-step formula to success where success is defined as financial security somewhere between living comfortably and fame and fortune. And it begins with getting the right career that will allow you to do that. So there's two primary roads to that success. Education with at least a college degree, is considered an absolute must. Or a unique talent, no matter how bizarre that talent is, as long as people are willing to pay for it. So you can do a shortcut around education. And we admire and idolize people who have achieved that kind of success. And now, parents put kids through that and teach them then and raise them with almost without any thought. I also call this fear-based parenting because it is driven by a persistent underlying anxiety that our children 
are going to miss it. That somehow they're going to miss the boat and they're not going to achieve worldly success. So we, we, we're really careful to make sure that they're in the right school, doing the right thing, on the right path toward that success. And this has led to a couple of things that's, now, that's very common now in our society. An ever-increasing pressure on kids to excel academically, dedicating their childhood, their teens, and early adult years to nothing but the pursuit of a degree that promises a profitable career on the other side so that we don't have to worry about them anymore. And it creates parents who are financially burdened far beyond any previous generation for an extended period of time. Deuteronomy 31.13 says, Their children who do not know this law must hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Children learning to fear the Lord is of the utmost importance to God regardless of their financial success. The fear of the Lord means they have a reverential trust in God. It it means to develop a deep conviction that the God of the Bible is real and therefore His Word must be taken seriously and carefully followed. According to Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is also the starting point from which a child continues to grow in wisdom, which God values more than intelligence or academic success. You can have a very highly, you can take a fool and educate them and you will have an educated fool. And there are a lot of those who are successful by the world standards but make all kinds of of damaging decisions because they're not wise. Godly wisdom leads to all kinds of good things in life. According to Proverbs 22.6, the direction of our parenting is actually prescribed. Train a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not turn from it. The idea in parenting today, the popular idea is figure out where the child wants to go Make sure they feel good about themselves and then encourage them in that direction. But the Bible actually prescribes that there is a way they should go. And instead of helping a child be who they are, our responsibilities help them become who they ought to become. Those are very different. The should go way means training children to live their lives and answer to these questions. What does God want for my life? What, what does He want me to do? What will please Him? While formula parenting is fear-based, this approach to parenting is faith-based in that it requires us to, one, take God at His word. Several years ago, when our daughter was young and I was in college and studying psychology and then in grad school where I studied psychology and counseling, I was introduced for the first time in college to the idea of self-esteem and it being very, very important. This is back in the 70s and the self-esteem movement was just taking hold and becoming popular. And uh, 
everybody was wondering, should, should, we, should we raise our child so that they have high self-esteem? I looked at that. made sense to me for a while. And then I began to read Scripture, and I decided based on my wife and I both, based on our understanding of what the Bible said, it was not important. And we made a conscious decision back then. We were not going to raise our child with any consideration whatsoever of her self-esteem. But rather, we're going to raise her to the fear of the Lord. And then God will take care of that. Now, that was a big risk. Because what if we're wrong? Well, it turns out, I'm really glad we didn't do that. Because in the last 30 years, all kinds of studies have come out showing what has happened to a generation that's been raised with that. And just as an example, there has been a 30% increase in narcissism over the last 20 years among college freshmen that is directly attributed to the emphasis on self-esteem. I think that's a problem. Second thing is we have to trust our children to God's purposes for them, even where he, even if where he leads them cost them and us dearly. We have to let go. And we, we have, it's between them and God. And God may lead them places that we really don't want them to go or to do things that, that might endanger them. But they're convinced that that's what God has for them. The biblical focus of parenting is shaping inward character, not just outward behavior. The world focuses on outward behavior and parenting, ignoring anything the Bible says about what's called the hidden person of the heart from which behavior flows. When parents focus primarily on the behavior of a child, the child over time learns that what matters most is what people think. They become people pleasers, acting based on the approval or disapproval of others. And that leads to a chameleon-like behavior. They're all things to all people that they may be liked by all. They're then much more easily influenced by their peers. There is a myth that if you help children feel better about themselves, they, can, they will be able to resist because they won't depend on what others think of them. Actually, the opposite is true. The more you teach them to focus on feeling good, the more they'll need other people to validate them. Also, if parents ignore what's on the inside, they will completely miss the truth about what is native to a child's heart. According to Proverbs 22:15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. This is a stubborn self-centeredness that is naturally there that has to be driven out with consistent corrective instruction. And if we only focus on behavior, we will miss that. According to the Bible, God is most concerned about character. This is one of the things that God means by godly offspring. And character comes out of the heart. First Samuel 16, 6 through 7 says, When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things man looks at. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Godly character 
begins with the fear of the Lord. As a child faces difficult situations by putting their trust in God. Children learn to live in each moment with the sense that God is with them and that they ultimately answer to him. So they're much more likely to be consistent in their behavior if that conviction is there. There are, there are hundreds of character qualities, but I want to mention four important ones that are the opposite of what's common today. One is humility versus pride. Humility is critical to teach our children that the world does not revolve around them. And they actually answer to God. Gratitude versus entitlement. Gratitude is extremely important in life. Many kids today feel entitled to just about anything and everything. And that leads to a lack of contentment. Gratitude leads to contentment. And not wanting more and more. Respect versus being inconsiderate and rude. Respect is about being considerate. It, it is living my life understanding that what I do actually affects people. It's actually one of the basis of the biblical idea of love. And then diligence versus laziness. Diligence means taking the initiative and following something through to the end in spite of the difficulties. Laziness is giving up. Kids with these qualities will stand out and above others. These are formed by teaching children in particular situations what character qualities are being challenged, teaching them to know Scripture, memorize it, and use it in situations, and asking, how does God want me to respond here? Teaching them to rely on the Holy Spirit in them that gives them the power to act on His Word, and then teaching them with great patience. Colossians 3.21, Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. One final quick word that's we don't have time to flesh out, but it's worth mentioning. All of this takes place best. Marriage and family thrive best in the context of a loving community. I won't read it, but Titus talks about a community of faith, that is, in this kind of community here, where the older generation helps the younger generation build into the next generation. That, that not only provides reinforcement for doing that, but it makes parenting a lot easier because it is shared. And I am very grateful for having been able to raise our daughter in that. I leave you with this question then to consider. What is the foundation or the ultimate authority upon which you base your parenting? I hope that this has been an encouragement for you to consider more seriously, if you haven't, the, the Bible as your foundation. And I've listed a couple of next steps that you can take that will help move you in that direction. One is make a commitment to raise your children on the right foundation. Uh, and if you're not a parent anymore, raised your kids then commit to helping your kids raise them on that foundation and ask God to help you and begin to know what the Bible actually teaches about parenting and we are more than willing to help you do that here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. 
Uh, not only is your word a solid foundation for life and relationships and marriage and parenting and every other area of life, but you also graciously have given us very specific instructions for how to have a life that brings blessing and honor to you. So we are, we are grateful for that and ask that you would help us to trust you and take you at your word and give us the, the help and power uh, to obey it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.